Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that, you may, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Have you ever heard a husband or wife say after a divorce something like this? I just didn't love him or her anymore. And I want to be fair to stay with them when my love is gone. For who would want to be married to someone whose love has left them? Maybe you've heard someone say that. Maybe those words have come out of your mouth. But thoughts like that seem logical and seem reasonable and can even seem normal. Have you ever seen a marriage that seems impossible? Maybe even between two believers. It just seems like there's no way anything good can come from this from human perspective. Have you ever seen two people hopeless? Acknowledging with their mouth they want to honor God, they want to do what God wants, but doesn't see hope, doesn't see how after maybe 40 years, change can actually happen. How could change come after all this time and all this effort? Children, have you ever had to share something with your brother or sister or with a friend like it needs to be cut in half or broken in half, even worse? If you have a knife, you can cut things more exact. But have you ever had a parent break something in half and then you begin to fight over the bigger half? I want this side of it. Or he got five pieces of candy and I only got four. Kids, can you relate to that? I remember one time... Uh, Ella, this, this wasn't a few weeks ago, this is several years ago, she gave me permission to use this story, but Laura will keep a log of things the kids say uh, that are funny that we want to remember, 
And at one point in time, Ella says, Mom, it's not fair. Hope isn't counting me more important than herself. (laughs) Because that's what she knew she was supposed to do. And she was mad that hope wasn't counting her more important than herself. And as I look at, talk to my children and I, there's a fight over something, then I ask them, well, do you want to have it or do you want your brother or sister to have it? What would Jesus want? Oh, there's a dilemma. (laughs) You're you're sitting there, you want it, you know you want it, but you know you, you should want your sister or brother to have it. And yet it feels almost impossible to change what you want. How, how can that change? Well, we're at this transition point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's transitioning from what God has done in Christ, these incredible things uh, that blow our mind beyond belief, the, the grace of God in Christ Jesus that began before the foundation of the world that bought our redemption, his death on the cross, buying our redemption. We've been given adoption as sons of full inheritance with Christ. We've been brought from death to life. All these things, and now he's going to get to our working, our doing what we're called to do in the new man, in the new nature. And as he launches us off to know how to actually want your brother or sister to have better than yourself, or to actually love your spouse that if you're honest is unlovable at the time in your mind, that's what your feelings say, where are you going to get the power? Where are you going to get the power to do all that Paul's about to ask you to do? Let me just give you a summary of what's coming. You think those things I said at the beginning was hard. Listen to this. He's going to say, bear with one another in love. Well, that's self-denial. Be self-controlled in your flesh. Oh, there's self-denial. Put on the new self. Well, that's death to the old self. Don't lie, but only speak the truth that will build others up. Do not sin in your anger. Where are you going to get the power not to do that? Do not steal, but rather work hard so that you may give to others. How are you going to turn from a thief into someone who works hard in order to give it to someone else. That's total reversal. Don't grieve the Spirit, Paul's going to say. How are you not going to do that? How are you going to walk with the Spirit? Let all bitterness, anger, slander be put away. How are you going to do that? That anger has maybe built for 20 years. That that bitterness has built for how long? 
How are you going to put it away? How are you going to quit talking bad about other people in your slander? And then he just says, be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. In fact, forgive just as God forgave you in Christ. Full forgiveness that doesn't hold it against you. Where are you going to get the power for that? And then he just says this, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And then he says, walk in love. I'm going to walk in love and be an imitator of God. And then he says, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, crude joking, don't, don't even let those things be named among you. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husband, loves your, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. And oh yeah, fight and defeat the demons. All right, so that's what's coming. And if you miss this sermon... If you miss all that's come before this, then what you just heard was a big burden of failure coming your way that you can't do nothing about. Because that can all just be law. Go do all those things in your own strength is a good way to kill yourself. Because you can't do it. And so we need to know what Paul is saying if he's going to command us to do those things and to go be like this, where are you going to get the power? Where is it going to come from? All right. If you look at your sermon notes, The title of the message is this, to him who is able to transform us into love that works. All right? To have the Spirit's power within you is to have Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. Now, we went over some of this last week. Look at what he says In verse 16, Paul's praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Holy Spirit power in your inner being. To have that is to have the opportunity for Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, the Spirit, God is the author and perfecter of our faith. The Spirit is the one that gives life to us, that that ignites our faith. It's by the Spirit's power it's ignited. It's by the Spirit that we're guarded through faith to a salvation that's going to be revealed to us in the last time. And we talked last week how when we trust in the Scripture, we don't just know it. When we trust in Christ, 
It's as though Christ sits down in our living room with us, in our home with us. He dwells with us. Now, we can, we, we, we can quench the Spirit and drive Christ away, not that a person becomes unsaved. A person is, uh, uh, gets the Holy Spirit the moment they believe, but this passage isn't talking about that. This passage is talking about walking with the Spirit, being filled up with the fullness of Christ in our life. Later, Paul's going to tell us not to quench the Spirit in Ephesians, not to work against the Spirit. And, and so, secondly, last week we talked a lot about Christ sitting down in our hearts through faith. Secondly, to have the Spirit's power working within you is to have a foundation of love. And we talked about this too. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, being grounded in love, meaning this is the stability of your life that's yours. As someone says, what, what is this person like? They're like a person whose anchor is love in their life. It's not that they're perfect, but that's the goal. That, that's where we're heading towards when Christ returns or when we go there. So to, let's define love before we get too far. Because if we're to be rooted and grounded in love, what is love? This is the word agape. You've probably heard uh, many people talk about agape love. It's different than romantic love. Uh, it's, it's different than brotherly love. Agape love is the selfless giving love. It's selfless. It's self-denial for the good of another. Agape love is an act of the will, and it's not controlled by mere emotions or feelings. Let me say that again. Agape love is an act of the will. It's a choice. See, the husband or wife that says, well, I don't love him anymore, or I don't love her anymore, doesn't make any sense in the sense that Paul asked husbands and wives to love, your, to love each other. Because that's the word he uses in Ephesians chapter 5. He uses agape love that's not based on romantic feelings. It's based on choice, a decision of the will. You see, it's not about, if you're to show me agape love, it's not so much how you feel about me. It's a decision to love me. And if I'm going to love you in an agape love type of way, it's not that emotions are bad or that feelings are absent. They, they actually ought to be there. It, it, it might show just the battle between our flesh and the spirit if it's not there. But agape love is an act of the will. See, it's the type of love God showed us in Christ. We weren't lovable as he saw us in our sin. In fact, we were rebels. 
in rebellion to him, and he showed us agape love. Paul Tripp defines this sort of love in this way. He says, love is willing self-sacrifice. You hear that? Willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't require reciprocation. If you're only interested in loving those who are deserving, the reality is you're not driven by love for them, but by love for yourself. Love does its best work when the other person is undeserving. So the married couple that says, we just don't love each other, and it's a mess. Paul David Tripp says, great opportunity for agape love. Love does its best work in this scenario, right here and right now. Because if your husband was lovable and you loved him, you might not love him actually at all. It could just be love for yourself. You love him because he gives to you. Where the definition of love is self-denial. The definition of agape love is self-denial for the good of another. Here's, how, here's the way John MacArthur illustrates it. He says, if a husband fails in love for his wife or she for him, it is never because of the other person, regardless of what the other person may have done. That sounds provocative. He says, you do not fall either into or out of agape love because it is controlled by the will Romantic love can be a beautiful and meaningful thing, and we find many favorable accounts of it in the Scripture, but it is agape love that God commands husbands and wives to have for each other. The love that each person controls by his own act of the will. Strained relations between husbands and wives, between fellow workers, between brothers and sisters, between any others is never a matter of incompatibility or personality conflict, but is always a matter of sin. Why? Why is it always a matter of sin? Because love is a choice. Love is commanded. It's not suggested to us. You know, what, is the, what does John say? John, or how, John records Christ saying in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. If you want to know the greatest type of love, it's agape love, and it's self-sacrificial, self-denying. Before we go look at the love of Christ, we got to know what love is. We have to get it defined. Philippians 2, 6, though he was in the form of God, this is Christ, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning that he couldn't comprehend, it's not that he couldn't comprehend it, it's just that he let go in order to come down here of privileges that he could have hung on to. 
He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grabbed onto, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Think of these words. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. There's the giving, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, self-denial on the point, up to the point of death, humiliating himself down from the heights of heaven, taking on flesh and then dying at the hands of evil men under the wrath of God the Father as our sins are put on him. No wonder when Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love is patient. Is there self-denial in there? You better believe there's self-denial in there. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't insist on the bigger part of the candy bar, children. When you do that, you're not loving. It doesn't insist on its own way. Oh man, this one strikes deep. It is not irritable. Oh, for real? Is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends or love never fails. And Paul always puts it as the chief of all virtues. Prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. But love, that'll never pass away. First John 4, 9, still defining love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. All right, all right. what's the love of God look like? It, it became manifest. It appeared. We could see it. That God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. He sent His only Son. Talking with my girls on the way back from the deer stand this week, we were talking about this. Who had the harder job, God sending his only son or Jesus dying on the cross? The thought first came up, why did Jesus have to do the hard work? If anyone's a parent, you imagine giving your child for rebels and criminals? But love became manifest that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this love, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. A propitiation means, I, I think of the word like a sponge, like a sponge that 
sucks up water, sucks the water up into it, or a bounty paper towel sucks up the liquid that's on your counter. And God the Father sent Jesus to soak up all of his wrath that sinners deserve upon himself to make payment, to absorb it into himself so that it's gone. Love becomes manifest when this happens. When God sends Christ to be a propitiation for us, for our sins. And then he says, beloved, this is 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You realize that when you love one another, his love is perfected. That's what he's doing in your salvation. That's what God is changing you into if we love God we ought to if he loved us in that way ought we not love one another listen to Romans 5 5 in hope does not put us ashamed because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us now this is similar to what Paul's saying here He wants us to be strengthened by the Spirit in our inner being, to be rooted and grounded in love. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for those who could give back to Him. He died for the ungodly. You might be sitting here today and say, I don't think God can save me. I don't think Christ died for me. Well, he died for the ungodly. I think you qualify. And then he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Scarcely. Scarcely. If a woman's getting attacked in the parking lot, nine out of ten men watch. Scarcely will someone die for a righteous person. They'll Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So love is an act of obedience. And to not love is an act of sin. First John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Two things he can't separate. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's not a suggestion. You must. Why? Because that's what he's working in you. That's what he's doing. His love is so tenacious that it won't stop until you become like him. 
We're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's the end of this passage. The fullness of God is going to be rooted up into our lives, in our hearts. We're raised in fairness. Everything is about fairness. I would forgive him, but he doesn't deserve it. And so we argue and 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 we forget the love of Christ. We forget what it looks like. We forget that we're to have that sort of love and you're only going to get it. You're only going to have it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Christ's love that was poured into our hearts, Paul tells us in Romans. It's not your love. There's only one fountain of love, and it's Christ. And if you're going to have any love, it's going to be from that fountain that comes through the Holy Spirit that comes into your life. Because you can only ever be selfish in and of yourself. It's true. You say, well, that's not true because an unbeliever can do a selfless act for the good of another. Yeah, but as soon as him or her does that, where does the glory go? Because the writer of Hebrews says, anything done not in faith is sin. So even the best deeds done by a non-believer, the most selfless deeds done by a non-believer... If it's not done for the sake of Christ, for His glory, guess who's going to get the glory? Really rich people who have companies. You know, they'll give to charities. They just want someone to know so they get the credit. They want their business to go better. In the world, they want to be thought of right. That's not Christ-like love. That's calculated love that gets you the response you want. Did you know that to love is in fact to fill the whole law? Fulfill the whole law? That's what Jesus taught, Matthew 22, 37. He said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All of them. It's all about love. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13, 8. Owe no one, or owe no one anything except to love one another. Did you know you were in debt to love one another? Owe no, no, owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's what it was all about. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. That's Romans 13, 8 through 10. To, to commit adultery is all selfish. It's not self-denial. To look at Pornography is all selfish. It's all about you. It's all about you getting pleasure. 
To steal is all about you. To murder is all about you. To covet is all about you. To lie is all about you. To love is to deny yourself. So Christ sets down in our hearts through faith that we be rooted and grounded in love. This becomes the stability of our life. This is convicting, preaching this text in the middle of the rut. (laughs) One of my favorite times of year, hunting deer. Easy to be selfish. Easy to think about my self. Everything I'm called to do, I'm called to do in love. In love. See, the Bible doesn't say 90% love time, 10% selfish time. How do I know? Because this text ends with the fullness of God. By the way, we're not going to get to then, so I'm giving you a little sneak peek. This text ends with the fullness of God. And if the fullness of God dwells in you, guess how much of you is left? Nothing. And God loves us so much, he is so determined that his spirit in us is continually convicting us of sin, taking us to the cross, saying, look at the love of Christ, then empowering our self-denying love to one another. So from one degree of glory, we're growing in our sanctification as he's transforming us more and more into the image of Christ to the point where he tells us in this letters to imitate him, to imitate God. To, and then how does he describe that? To walk in love is what it looks like to imitate God. Let's see where we're at here. All right, let's look at number three. So to be filled with the power of the Spirit in our inner being is to have a collective knowledge of the love of Christ. Look at verse 18. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. With all the saints. Okay, American Christians. This passage, we're supposed to see this. You can't do the love thing by yourself. Makes sense, right? (laughs) Who are you going to love if you isolate yourself? If every person you don't want to hang out with, you just stiff arm and you hang out with these people, well, you got a pretty easy life. Hang out with people till they offend you, then move on to the next people until they offend you, and move on to the next people until they offend you. The problem is, is you've been baptized into Jesus Christ and into his body. So you can't get away from his people. See, that was God's plan to conform us in the image of Christ. We don't get to run away from one another. 
We don't get to pick and choose. I'm hanging out with the lovable ones and not these ones. It was his idea. And if we're going to comprehend the love of Christ, we're going to do it together. I mean, just go read chapter 4. How, how, how do we grow in love? How do we build our ch- each other up in love? It's the church. He gives gifts to the church. The church builds one another up, speaking the truth in love, and, and it matures. When each part is working properly, it matures, is what he says. You can't be a very loving person apart from the church. You can't be. Now, you can have good Christian friends like you, that you want to hang out with, but you're not being challenged. See, God wants you to commit to everyone in the local church, not just the ones just like you. He wants us to commit to each other. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. That's what he's going to tell us in Ephesians 5. He's going to say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because our baptism illustrates our union with Christ. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His cleansing is our cleansing. And to be immersed into Christ is to be immersed into His body. See, He just doesn't go around and and save individuals to be off on their own. No, He saves them to know the love of Christ, to comprehend the love of Christ in community. And I'm arguing here today for the community of a local church where the Holy Spirit saves and draws all sorts of different people. Rich people, poor people, sports people, book people, all sorts of different people. You know, nowadays you have biker churches. I'm not saying nothing good happens there. God works a lot in spite of ourselves. There should never be a biker church. Should never be a cowboy church. See, that's not what Christ does. Christ draws all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Our unity is not in our preferences, but it's that we've all been shown the same love from Christ. Here's what John Stott says. He says, the isolated Christian can indeed know something of the love of Jesus, but his grasp of it is bound to be limited by his limited experience. It needs the whole body of people, uh, of people of God, to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, black and white, with all their varied backgrounds and experiences. And so we're going to comprehend the love of Christ. Here, the reality is this. We need people that think differently than us. They might, they might even challenge us. See, now I have to respond. How do I speak truth in love? How am I kind? How do I consider another person more important than myself? Man, this is difficult. This seems unpleasant. Well, this is being conformed to the image of Christ. 
It's what it looks like. You need a place that probably isn't the easiest place to be. Sovereign Grace Church, hopefully, isn't the easiest place to be. Why? Because we want to take to the best of our ability. I know we don't, we don't do this perfectly. We fail in many ways. But we want to take God serious with what He's doing in the saints, in believers, what He's building. And if we take Him serious... There's accountability to one another. There's submitting to one another. There's preferring one another. There's bearing with one another. And that's the opportunity we have at Sovereign Grace. Next week, we're going to look at the love of Christ. Do our best to understand the incomprehensible. But I do want to just read the end of the passage. I want you to look at it so it's in your mind. Here's how this text ends. In verse 18, be rooted and grounded in love so that we can have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So that's how far we've gotten today. What is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the the end point. I'll give you a little hint. When Christ leaves, what does he say? He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Why? Because he's sending the helper. Who's the helper? It's the spirit. Paul calls him the spirit of Christ. To do what? To live in you. The fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is fully God, and He dwells in you. And His power is in you. And no wonder He says, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. It's not you, it's Him. But He's really in you, Christian. And we really have the opportunity to stiff-arm the Holy Spirit quench the spirit and live according to the flesh or we can see the love of God in the giving of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us and we can walk with him and when we walk with him, guess what? We become like him. So everything else coming in Ephesians is unpacking what we're to do by his power, through the love of Christ that is given to us in Christ. 